The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Right, well, if you go ahead and turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, the, the passage tonight is really just one of those famous passages. It's uh, sort of a capstone to the, uh, to the whole argument, right? So 50 to 58 is this uh, grand summary conclusion. The apostle says, starting in verse 50, he says, Now... I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So this brings us to this wonderful um, summary passage, and uh, I think that every time we have uh, a funeral for a believer, I read this in in the call to worship, uh, because this is such, uh, it, it's just filled with, with, our ultimate hope. And so, in verse 50, um, Paul doesn't actually introduce a whole lot of new stuff here, um, a, a few things, but most of it is, is just reiterating what he's already said. So when he says, now I say this, brethren, uh, I just want to note, first of all, there's, there's already a note of charity here, right? Um, Paul has been dealing with people who um, have been saying there's no resurrection for Christians. He takes the error very seriously. But notice he still maintains an attitude of charity. Uh, and, and so when he says, now I say this, brethren, um, he's, he's about to make a declaration, right? And uh, Schreiner says it's, it's really uh, significant. He says, when you have this, now I say it is it is about to be an important and weighty pronouncement, all right? But don't miss the brethren part, all right? And so here's Paul just having a soft heart towards these people, and he's about to now make this weighty, important pronouncement, and it's just simple. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, what he says here is is really nothing new. It's sort of a um, a, a restatement, and so when he says flesh and blood does not inherit um, the the kingdom of God, flesh and blood is um, figure of speech for human nature. All right. Now Paul has argued strenuously that our resurrection bodies will be a resurrection of our human bodies. All right, but. Flesh and blood is a reference to our present fallen human nature, which by definition is temporal. And then he says, and the perishable, that is, in a sense, mortal human bodies. Okay? So the moment that sin entered into the world, death entered into the world through sin, Romans 5.12, and Ever since then, right, so going all the way back to the beginning, ever since then, um, the, the, the entire tribe, as Isaac Watts put it, the entire tribe of flesh and blood, right, that is all humanity, is perishable. So the minute that you are born and enter into this world, 
you enter into a fallen world that is held under the sway of the law of sin and death. And that means you're on a trajectory to perish, to die. And Paul's point is very simple. These bodies, this fallen human nature is not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. And that which is destined to perish cannot inherit the imperishable. This has been uh, really uh, Paul's argument, especially as we saw last week in 42 to 44, then 45 to 49. The fact is, is that these bodies need to be, uh, need to be uh, retrofitted for eternal habitation. What you have right now will not do. Even if you're in the prime of life, it will not do. And so his declaration, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom, perishable will not inherit the imperishable. Then he says, verse 51, you have to love this, behold, I tell you a mystery. Ah, a mystery. Like Sherlock Holmes or uh, Agatha Christie, right? A mystery. How many of you just love mystery novels? Mystery has nothing to do with the way that we think about the word mystery, all right? We think of a whodunit or some sort of puzzle. In the Bible, a mystery is, is a truth that has been revealed, okay? Now, let's take that a little further because this is incredibly significant for what Paul's about to say. Mystery in the Bible... Um, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, has an Old Testament, New Testament connection. So there's a, let's say, a truth in the Old Testament, and that truth is is concealed in part to a degree. And it is, it's present but it is not clear. With the dawning of the New Testament through the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, then that which was unclear or, let's say, partially concealed is now that which is revealed, right? And so you have a number of things that are mysteries in the New Testament and when Paul says that, he doesn't mean stuff that only the, the initiated can know about. He's saying this is something that is now revealed for all of God's people. All right? So um, there, there actually is a great example of this that is um, really illustrative. Just turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 16. All right? Now, according to uh, Paul... In the book of Romans, you might remember this since we're in Romans. You guys do remember we're in Romans, okay? So, if you go back to chapter 1, remember, where is the gospel revealed? Okay. Through the prophets, right? The gospel actually was spoken beforehand through the prophets, um, 321, the righteousness of God, which is, in a sense, the essence of the gospel, was revealed through the law and the prophets. Okay? So, so could you make a, a good argument that the gospel is present in the Old Testament? Yes. Shake your head vigorously in the affirmative. Yes. The gospel is present in the Old Testament. Is the gospel crystal clear in the Old Testament? No. So notice what Paul does at the end of Romans. He says, verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery 
which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. You know what you actually see in these two verses regarding the idea of mystery is that it was present in the Old Testament, all right? I mean, you, you see that clearly. Um, it was there in the scriptures of the prophets, but now it is revealed in a way that it has been made known to all nations, all right? So a Hittite may not have been, uh, let's just say the Hittites were not known for being ushered into the kingdom by understanding the gospel. What you had is a person here, a person that, so Ruth, for instance, right? You have Ruth, you have Rahab, you have a person here, a person there among the nations that are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, become the people of God. And so you have the gospel that's present, but it's not fully revealed. What does it take for the full revelation of the gospel? It takes the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit. Okay? In other words, it is the, uh, it is the events of Christ that all of a sudden does what? It brings clarity to thousands of passages in the Old Testament. And then the Spirit coming brings high-definition explanation to those passages through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you have that which was present but concealed, and then with the coming of Christ and the Spirit, the full revelation of the mystery. All right? And so, um, were Old Testament saints saved through the gospel? Yes. Okay, they were saved through the gospel. Were they saved through the gospel with the same degree of clarity that we presently have? No. Now, I would grant that they probably knew more than we often give them credit for, okay? But they were saved through this, in a sense, the, in, in, in promise, right? The promise of the gospel, we're saved uh, this side of the fulfillment of the gospel. And so there is this wonderful sense where we are living on this side of the revelation of the mystery, okay, which is Christ, okay? So when Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery, he's about to say something that was not, let's just put it this way, altogether clear in the Old Testament, okay? So Augustine put it like this, um, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed, okay? Uh, sometimes, uh, and I think Augustine was responsible for this too, the Old Testament is like the, the, the rosebud and the New Testament is like the full unfolding of, of the rose, And so Paul's about to explain a mystery, and here it is. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, which, of course, should be hung up in every nursery in every church across America. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed, okay? Now... (laughs) So, we'll do it this way. Was the resurrection of the body revealed in the Old Testament? Uh, 
Okay, if somebody said, where, and you didn't have these notes in front of you, I think I put some text down. Okay, Old Testament. Old Testament. That's not Old Testament. You, you have to fundamentally get the Testaments right in order to answer the question properly. All right? So, all right, so you've, you've used up your, your one answer. Uh, <laughs> Jeff. Okay, so we have um, a, a pretty clear uh, declaration of Christ's resurrection, all right? So I'm talking specifically about resurrection of believers, okay? You actually have some passages. How about that? Isaiah chapter 26, true. Um, Daniel 2, two uh, 12, 2 and 3. Um, Job 19, right? So I know my Redeemer lives, right? And though my flesh be destroyed, yet I know from my flesh I will see God. Okay? So is that um, abundantly clear about a resurrection glorified body? No, but what it is, is it is most certainly a declaration of hope beyond the grave that seems to indicate resurrection from the dead, all right? Um, So you have um, a few passages that indicate a resurrection from the dead, okay? But notice what Paul says the mystery is. Paul does not say the mystery is simply the resurrection from the dead. Paul says the mystery is this, we will not all sleep. That is, not all Christians will die. But we all will be changed. So there will be some Christians who do not die, but all Christians will will be resurrected from the dead. So just think about this for a second, what Paul's saying, right? So will the overwhelming majority of Christians in the course of of church history die? And the answer is yes, the overwhelming majority will. But there are going to be some that won't. But here's the reality, whether you're among that group or among the other group, we're all going to be changed. And so... In a sense, what Paul is doing is, is Paul is, is, is unfolding a mystery to help explain to them how believers will be raised from the dead. Okay? In other words, the unfolding of the mystery is ultimately the answer to the question, how then are the dead raised? Okay? And so I put a little quote in there from really a, a fantastic book, Hidden but, but Now Revealed, The Biblical Theology of Mystery. If you want to read it, it's only about 400 pages. But he says, The revelation of the mystery solves the dilemma raised by Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-five and 50. That is, flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. It does not narrowly refer to the transformation of the living, a situation that would only solve part of the problem, but the entire group of individuals, both the living and the dead. And so, very clearly, Paul's point is not all Christians will experience death, but all Christians will, in fact, experience resurrection. And so the question is, when is that going to happen? On September 20th, 2021, you, 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 you do know that the minute somebody sets a date, they're automatically wrong. <laughs> 2,000 years of date setting and nobody's got it right yet, all right? Paul actually tells us when this resurrection of those who will not all sleep, okay, and then those who are asleep tells us when it's going to happen. And notice what he says. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So what does that mean? That means it's going to be an instantaneous event. It is going to be in, in the blink of an eye. It's really, it's really wonderful when you think about it. So here you are. Let's say you are those that are not going to fall asleep. That is, you're not going to die. And then um, this event happens that we haven't identified yet. And it is so fast that in the twinkling of an eye, in the, in the blinking of an eye, boom, you're changed. Exciting, right? Exciting. It is this instantaneous thing. And when does it happen? You can see it right there on the text, in the text. At the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. Now, this is, this is sort of the interesting part, right? Because um, uh, my wife has a wonderful sense of humor. She says to me this morning, she says, uh, so what's Bible study on tonight? And so I just read the passage to her. And she goes, oh, so you're teaching on the rapture. And I said, have we been married so long that you still have no understanding? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I remember about 30, (laughs) 32 and a half years ago, I came home and uh, from from school one day and I said, "Uh, you know what, hon, I I don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture anymore. And she looks at me, she goes, well, that's fine. I'm going, you can stay. I wore her down over the last three decades. So anyway, so the last trumpet, what is the last trumpet, right? This is, by the way, this is incredibly debated. So there is a trumpet at the final judgment in Matthew 24, 31, all right? When all the elect are gathered from the four corners of the earth, there is a trumpet. There is a trumpet mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, that the trump of God shall sound and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so there is this trumpet blast that is designated as the last trumpet. And so the last trumpet seems to indicate that it is last But yet, there's a whole school of thought that says this is not the last trumpet, but just the last trumpet for the church. So they see this as the rapture of the church. So this is the scheme. All right, just for some of you, this is old hat, but for others, I should explain this. There is a view, and it's been the predominant view among American evangelicals. By the way, get that, American evangelicals for the last 160 years or so that goes like this. There will be this trumpet blast that will be the rapture of the church, the God's people, the church, will be uh, sucked up out of the world, okay, to meet the Lord in the air, okay? And so, by the way, this is uh, the whole Left Behind series. This is all predicated on this idea that the church is going to be taken out of the world, although human history continues, for seven years, okay? And that seven years is called the seven-year tribulation. Church is not present. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus comes back with his saints to the earth. There's a judgment of the nations, and then um, uh, the, uh, the commencement of a thousand-year millennial reign uh, of Christ uh, centered in Jerusalem, all right? Now, one of the things that's, that's interesting is, uh, let, let, me just say, let me just say this quickly. There is absolutely zero exegetical evidence that the rapture of the church and the second coming are two separate events. There's no evidence in the Bible 
for a secret rapture. And I have these discussions all the time. So even just a few weeks ago, we're headed down to the courthouse and and, uh, my good friend here has a good friend with her and uh, she says, do you believe in the tribulation? And I said, well, I I believe there's tribulation. What do you mean? Well, is the church going to be taken out? No. Why would you think that? Well, that's what my pastor says. This is about the way the conversation went, right? I'm not misrepresenting. And, the, um, and I said, well, what, what Bible text will be saved from the wrath to come? Okay. I said, well, you're referring to 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9. But what would make you think that Paul is using the term wrath in a restricted way to only refer to the last seven years of human history. Doesn't it make more sense that Paul's talking about to be saved from the wrath to come is to be saved from the eternal wrath of divine judgment? Doesn't that make much better sense than seven years? Okay. So when, when, when I say there is zero exegetical evidence for a distinction between the rapture and the second coming... I am more than happy to take on any, any passage from any challenger. Okay? And furthermore, you have three words for our Lord's return. Okay? Parousia, epiphania, and Help me. Anyway, so, uh, oh, apocalypsis. So you have these three words that are used for the Lord's return. And if the rapture and the second coming were distinct events, you would think one of those words would be used consistently for the rapture and the other word or words would be used consistently for the second coming. And here is the harsh reality is they're all used interchangeably to refer to the same event. So, you have to deal with this idea. So, if you're a pre-tribulational rapturist, so you're waiting. By, by the way, try telling the church in China or the church in Nigeria uh, that, that they're going to get to escape tribulation. This is a markedly American idea. Okay? brought to us by an Irishman who was in England, which may solve all of the problems. So, so the question then is, so what about this last trumpet? Because last just seems to be last, all right? So I, I, do, I, keep, I keep a lot of books of, from opposing views uh, in my library, and so I have two, two commentators who <laughs> are representing this view, because I want to say, I want to see, well, how do they understand, because I used to think this way years ago, but I'm, you know, getting so old that I can't remember what I used to think on these details. So just listen to this. So there is no basis for post-tribulationists, that is people that think that the rapture and second coming are the same event at the end of the tribulation. There's no basis for post-tribulationists equating this trumpet with the seventh trumpet, which would be, ah, the last trumpet, in Revelation eleven fifteen to 19. Why? Because the trumpets in Revelation pertain to judgments during the tribulation, whereas the trumpet in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two is related to the church. Now, that's actually a logical fallacy. Second commentator, and I wonder if they plagiarized. Some people believe that this trumpet is the same as the seventh trumpet of judgment, Revelation eleven fifteen to 19. However, the trumpets in Revelation relate to God's judgment during the tribulation, and this trumpet is blown for the church. Okay. So the last trumpet, it's like, well, the last trumpet is the last trumpet, but only for the church. So it's the last thing the church hears before it's sucked up out of the world. All right. So... <clears throat> Why spend time on this? 
Um, because your hope is not to escape tribulation. That's not your hope. Your hope is to escape divine wrath in future judgment. And that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay. My fear, and there are very good people, people that I love dearly that hold to this view. Um, for a lot of Christians, it's a, it's a very sentimental view because it's the only view that they've ever heard. And every study Bible that they've ever owned promotes this view. And uh, every movie, every Christian movie that they've ever watched has had people disappear on airplanes and, and so forth. And, um, you know, the bumper sticker, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, right? And so there's a lot of sentimentality attached to the view. And what I want to say is that the scriptures actually prepare us to enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. And an escapist mentality, an escapist mentality, that we get some exit plan before things get really bad, does not prepare you to go through when things get really bad. Okay. And so I absolutely, completely, 100% um, disavow the idea of a secret rapture before seven years of tribulation. Okay. So the last trumpet is just the end of the age. The last trumpet is simply the final judgment that's marked by the coming of Christ. That is is the clear indication of Matthew uh, 25 or 24, 31. That's the clear indication of the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. And so here's what Paul says is going to happen at that last trumpet, okay? At the last trumpet, something's going to happen, and that is, it will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Okay? So here's, here is the way, so instead of having all of these different um, uh, microcosmic events that we call eschatology, here is what I consider... Pauline or New Testament eschatology, and that is, this world does in fact get worse, okay? Okay. And that's not to say that it gets worse everywhere, right? Any more than to say that that we don't think that there are times where it gets better, right? There are times where, so is it possible that God turns things around and things get better for a while? And the answer is yes. But we are on a trajectory of things getting worse worse, okay? And will the church enter into tribulation? And the answer is, we are, we have been, we are, and we will continue to be. Worldwide, to one degree or another, one way or another, that's the church's lot. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, you have to enter the kingdom of God, okay? And so, the, the, the event goes like this. Human history winds down. I think that there's, we'll get to Revelation in a few weeks. Will there be a personal antichrist? And the answer is yes. Okay? Yes. And we'll talk more about that later. You'll have a personal antichrist. You will have things that will get worse and worse. And then... The Lord Jesus will return with great power and glory, and it will be announced by a trumpet blast. And the minute that that trumpet blast is, is, is let loose, then 
all of those who have died in Christ will be raised imperishable in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then notice the next thing that Paul says, and we'll all be changed. So what that means is that the dead in Christ have a split-second priority of resurrection, all right? It's not like you're going to have to wait like 10 minutes or something like that. It's going to be split-second. The dead in Christ are raised first. And so, trumpet blast and massive resurrection throughout the entire world. And then all of the believers who are alive at that event, they too are transformed and resurrected. And this is, this is our, our awesome hope. This is, this is the consummation of our redemption. And to think about the realities of it should stir our hearts. Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Right? So some of my some of my favorite favorite songs are are about this very event. I still remember back in high school listening to Sandy Patty sing, We Shall Behold Him. Oh, my goodness. Or um, the guy that used to sing for a Gaither, I forget his name off the top of my head, David something or other, No More Night. Right? Listen to those songs because they end up reflecting this glorious, momentous event in which all of God's people, whether dead or alive, will be changed. And so this is exactly what Paul says. And this, this is the mystery, by the way, that both the living and the dead will be resurrected. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. Okay? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will be raised first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so you know what I tell you tonight, child of God? For your comfort, Jesus will return and you will be changed. Verse 51, or 53, sorry. Notice, for the perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality. By the way, all of this is is a repetition of what happens when we're changed, which Paul has already talked about. The perishable goes to the imperishable, the mortal goes to the immortality, and this is um, already, he's already juxtaposed these two things in 42 to 44. By the way, this is exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he talks about this earthly tent being taken down, and what do we look forward to? We don't want to be unclothed, but clothed because we have what a building, a body made from God without hands. And so we long, so when believers die, um, and, and we've had a number of our brothers and sisters just recently die. And so what, what happens when a believer dies? A believer actually, their body goes into the ground and their spirit or their soul goes into the presence of the Lord, Second Corinthians 5, 7, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. What are they doing right now? Well, they are, they're more blissed out than you could ever imagine. They're happier than you could ever imagine, but they are in what is called the intermediate state. This is not the permanent state. There is something that is, even in the presence of God right now, the justified spirits of men made perfect, even for them, 
there is a sense of incompleteness because they're in a state of nakedness. That is, their spirit is in the presence of the Lord, but they are a disembodied spirit, and God did not make us to be disembodied souls. Forget what you learned from cartoons. Cartoons have typically not taught good eschatology. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit floating on a cloud strumming a harp. Your ultimate goal is for that trump to sound and to have your body and your soul reunited so that your soul is reunited to a resurrected, glorified body that lasts forever. Paul says, that's what I'm looking forward to. (laughs) That same Paul could say to live as Christ, to die as gain. But in 2 Corinthians 5, it's what I'm really looking forward to is this new house that God's going to make for me. All right. All right, so... Notice this is this is this is the magnificent part, right? Verse fifty-four. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so, what Paul's doing then is he's telling us that what happens. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on the immortality, that what happens is death finally dies. At the last trumpet, you have the final death of death. And so the transformation happens. And notice how many times Paul repeats this. It's almost as if he might want us to memorize it. This perishable will put on the imperishable. This mortal will put on immortality. He's already said it. He says it again. And he says, and when this happens, then will come about the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And so, one, uh, actually very fine commentary. It's the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And uh, the commentators there note, death in Paul's view, is a power that casts its ominous shadow over us all, and it must not just be removed, it must be defeated. So death is seen to be an enemy, an intruder into God's good world, sneaking in in Genesis chapter 3, wreaking havoc and misery ever since. And Paul says, once that last trumpet sounds, once the perishable puts on the imperishable, then will come about this great statement that death is swallowed up in victory. It's not just that death is no more a thing, it's that death itself will be defeated. And so what Paul does is he uses two Old Testament texts here. The first is Isaiah 25, 8. Let me just read it to you. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And so this is a great promise in Isaiah 25, which is actually looking forward to new creation, and he says he swallows up death for all time. The next text that's cited, it's a little more difficult. I'm going to read it to you. Hosea 13, 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Now, that doesn't sound overly promising. In fact, it actually sounds like God, through the prophet, is summoning death as judgment. And what happens at the end of Hosea? Well, the people of God are restored and forgiven. Tom Schreiner, I think he's right, he suggests you look at this text in light of the future promise in chapter 14, 
and, and seeing those promises ultimately fulfilled in Christ so that the last line, uh, compassion will be hidden from my sight, is, is no longer applicable. Why? Because Jesus Christ actually fulfills the promise of salvation and he, as it were, takes the summons to death for punishment and since he's been punished, the summons now becomes a taunt. Does that make sense to you? The summons to death to be the judgment, because Jesus bore the judgment for us, the summons is no longer a summons, but a taunt. And so, one commentator says, Paul turns a text about judgment into one declaring salvation, for we're not under the law, and the resurrection of Christ signals the beginning of the new age of redemption. Uh, Paul projects a a, a future vision of a stingless death precisely because Jesus Christ has himself absorbed the sting on the basis of how his death and resurrection addresses the problem of human sin and the law. And so here you end up having Paul Paul taking two Old Testament texts, bringing them together with a with both a Christological and eschatological focus so that the promise is is escalated in Christ and the threat is no longer a threat, but now a glorious promise in Christ. And and the declaration is, is magnificent. The declaration is is this, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death Where is your sting? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of our resurrection in him, death is being taunted. Why? Because one of these days, death will be gobbled up. And death will no longer be a thing. It will die, it will be swallowed up, it will be overwhelmed to be no more. And so we sing these words, and every time I just want to just jump right out of my skin. The ground began to shake, the stone was rolled away, his perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. Every single time, every single time we have a funeral for a saint, every single time we gather at a graveside, every single time we actually think about a loved one who has gone from this world into the next, I would say this, got it from John Owen, but leaving the land of the dying, to enter into the land of the living. That's what we do. This isn't the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. And every time we we celebrate the homegoing of one of God's people, we are celebrating one of these days, the last enemy that will be destroyed will be death. Death. Jesus whooped you, death. Paul then says something in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin. Anybody like getting stung? You typically try to avoid it, right? Some of you remember Carlos and Tavia Reyes. A a year ago last summer, Ariel and I were at the uh, uh, dock in San Clemente with Carlos and Tavia, and I'm standing there, and unbeknownst to me, I'm standing on the dock right above a hornet's nest that's built right under, and uh, one of those little demons from the pit flew up under my under my shorts 
Okay. Well, of course, all I know is, oh, there's a little tickle. And so I go, you know, well, then it starts stinging me. I was not happy. Okay. And, and it hurt. <laughs> you know, those, those, those little, you know, demons described for us in, in Revelation 9, they just keep stinging and stinging and stinging, right? And so the idea of the death has a sting to it. Death has a sting to it. And so when you think about so why, why does Paul, why does Paul introduce this right here? So what brings, de- uh, what brings death is, is sin, right? Okay. Sin brings death. Okay. And sin is what makes death terrifying. So just track with me for a second. In the book of Job, you know how death is referred to? The king of terrors. The king of terrors. It is sin that puts the sting in death. That is, it is sin that makes death fearful. Because we inherently know that at death, I will answer for my sins. And at death... I will be judged for my sins. The sting of death is, is real. And it's why people fear it. And then Paul says, and this is great, and the power of sin is the law. When was the last time Paul mentioned the law in 1 Corinthians? And the answer is it has been quite a while ago. And so uh, I, the only thing that I can make of this is that this is one of Paul's deep theological convictions, right? So if, if I'm going to talk about the sting of death, I might as well talk about and the power of sin is the law. And so, and so just again, just follow here this. What does the law do? Why is the power of sin the law? Does the law show you what your sin is? Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law shows me my sin. Can the law do anything to help me with my sin? Nothing. And so it's got the audacity to show me my sin, but it has the utter utter inability to help me with my sin. Oh, but is the law completely impotent? And the answer is no. The law has a peculiar power, and it's not to help me in my sin. It is to do what? To stir up my sin. Thanks a lot. So you show me where I'm wrong, give me no help to to get out of the mess I'm in, and beyond that, you end up provoking me to sin even more. You do know that is a a real-life principle, don't you? Right? And when does it start? When you're, like, born... Okay. What do I mean? I mean, you hear a command, and what does that command do? That command does, no, no, no little kid, no little kid ever says, um, okay, so mom and dad told me don't stick the butter knife in the outlet, and clearly the reason they told me that is because they love me, and want to protect me from all harm. Children don't think this way. What they hear is, no butter knife in the outlet. Bad. And they think, they're hiding something from me. I bet there's a ton of fun sticking a butter knife in an outlet. And so, mom and dad sit there and they go, stop it. And the kid has the butter knife, and then mom and dad turn away, and what does the kid do? It's closer and closer, right? So the command stirs up, right? I used to tell my kids, 
when you're riding your bike, don't go past these people's house and don't go past this fence, right? And so everything was fine as long as I was watching. I step in the house, and guess what they do? They go as far as they could, right? And then we had one compliant one that was absolutely self-righteous about having kept the law. Which, by the way, explains to us, in a sense, why Paul could actually say this, the power of sin is the law, because the power of sin is, is aroused by the law, and it does one of two things for me. Either leads me to an absolute, abject despair that I'll ever be able to be changed, or it turns me into a self-righteous Pharisee. But the fact is, is that the law and my sin actually work hand in hand together to utterly destroy me. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You know what this means? You and I are absolutely hopeless. We're going to die. We're going to answer for our sins. There is a law that shows me my sins. There is a law that arouses sin within me. There is a law that has the tendency to turn me into a self-righteous Pharisee. What in the world can I possibly hope for from a just and holy God? And that is why you have verse 57. Thanks be to God for our victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you understand, you understand what Paul's just done, right? Paul says, all right, one of these days, death's going to be swallowed up. But before I give you that hope, I got to make sure you understand this. There's a sting to death. In other words, you're going to want death to be swallowed up. And there is a power in sin that keeps you captive and the law just proves it and so if the law can't save you and there's a sting to death and you need to answer for your sins there's only one way to have victory over death and it's not through the law it is through our lord jesus christ and so thanks be to god for our lord jesus christ who gives us the victory the victory of what the victory over sin and the victory over death so stop and think about this this is this is this is really wonderful the victory over death comes how? It comes through resurrection. The resurrection comes through Jesus' death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus cancels the penalty for my sin, and in the resurrection, he overcomes the fruit of my sin, which is death. So if, if the fear of judgment for our sin is the sting of death, guess what happens when you don't fear judgment anymore because you're forgiven. Death has no more sting. No more. And guess what? If you're not under the power of the law anymore, guess what else? You're delivered from the power of sin through Christ. And so what Jesus does is he gives us the victory over the penalty of our sin. He gives us victory over the fruit of our sin, which is death. And that's how death is swallowed up in victory because Jesus gave gave us the victory over our sin. When you're laying there on your deathbed, and you're confident that you're going to leave this world and go right into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ, it is simply for one reason and one reason only, and that is because Jesus Christ has conquered your sin and therefore conquered the sting of death. You ever think about what it's like to die? You should. 
Puritans used to write entire books about it. Think about what that moment's going to be like. We're going to sing it Sunday. I love thee in life, I love thee in death, love thee as long as thou still lendest me breath, and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. We're going to sing that. Think about what it's like. Maybe in the kindness of God, you'll have your family around you. Maybe not. To know that your sins are forgiven and that death has no sting for you is the only way to face death. It's the only way. Well, in one minute, we'll do verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren. So you you get a sweetness in Paul, don't you? My beloved brethren. You rascals that I've spent 15 chapters spanking up one side and down the other, you're still my beloved brethren, right? He's got a heart for the Corinthians. Be steadfast and immovable. This is, this is magnificent. So our indestructible hope compels us to do what? To stand firm and to be steadfast in the gospel, not moved away from it. And so it's as if Paul's saying, listen, Corinthians, you're denying stuff that's giving you stability and strength and hope in this life. Stop it. Be immovable. Be steadfast. Be steadfast in that gospel message. Be steadfast in the death of Christ. Be steadfast in the resurrection. Be steadfast that one of these days the perishable will put on imperishable. Be steadfast fast in it. Don't be moved from it. If everybody else in the whole world said it wasn't true, you stay steadfast. Kids, you go off to college. Your professors say it isn't true. All of your friends say it isn't true. Stay steadfast. Don't move from the hope of the gospel. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, right? So just I Paul probably has to qualify this because the Corinthians are like, hmm, stay, stay steadfast, immovable. Okay, do nothing. No. Gladly abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? In other words, just happily going about your master's business until the trumpet sounds. If you drop dead first, no big deal. But just happily go about your master's business until the work is done or he calls you home. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So because the resurrection is true, our labor and our perseverance matters. There's nothing empty about serving God. Because of our future hope of the perishable putting on the imperishable, what you do in this life matters. How you serve God in this life matters. How you spend your time and your talent and your treasure, it matters. Abound in the work of the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Mothers, Raising those children, your labor is not in vain. Fathers, working your fingers to the bone and trying to be a godly dad, your labor is not in vain. Okay? It doesn't matter what you do. You do your work heartily unto the Lord and not a single bit of it will ever be in vain. Why? Because we win in the end. And what we do in this life matters. Because there's a life to come. If there was no resurrection and there was no future, eat your children while their bones are soft. It'll save you a lot of heartache later. I told Ariel the other day, you know, we should have eaten that one when his bones were soft. She always laughs when I say that. You do what you do for the glory of God, knowing that nothing that you do will ever be in vain. It will never be empty. 
and you keep your tank filled, how? By staying immovable and steadfast in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great chapter, right? Absolutely filled with hope. One of these days, death will die, will be raised imperishable, and be with the Lord Jesus forever. That's our hope. And so stay strong in it. Don't get moved from it. Don't let stupid stuff move you from it. I'm absolutely surprised what moves people off of the gospel. You're going to leave Jesus for that? That's really dumb. Your labor's not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those that are tired and those who are weary, and even those, Lord, who are wobbly right now. We pray that you would help them to be just steadfast in the hope of the gospel. And, uh, Father, for all of us, we pray that, that we would look forward with great anticipation when, when we will be able to say to death that you are done. You have died. Jesus has the victory. And so, Father, we pray that you would remind us of these truths, that you would keep our hearts fixed on you. Lord, even in the midst of this, of this crazy world and all the insanity, Father, just remind us that we have a core, we have a center that is locked into truth. And so all that we do, is not in vain. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.